0: Number 174, Brother Randall asked that we mark that and we'll use that at the appropriate time in our service this evening. As was already mentioned, certainly we're delighted that we have each been granted the opportunity to assemble, and it's our trust and hope that each aspect of the service will be encouraging and uplifting. We're so thankful not only for the membership, but our visitors who've come our way this evening, as always, and we trust that our worship could well with, be within the confines of all the loveliness exhibited within the pages of that which adores the Word of God. Tonight, as you may have noted in the bulletin and also on the wall to my left, the title of our lesson is somewhat stated as a question, Innocent Error at Bethel, and it, in fact drawn from the 13th chapter of Kings, and so it is back to that chapter I would invite us to give attention tonight as we look at what unfolds in such a powerful and rather dramatic fashion. And not only that, it prompts each of us to give sober reflection on the nature of the question. Was it an innocent error at Bethel or from it? Might we deduce thoughts that may help us live more closely and more lovingly at the side of our Savior each day? As we do that by way of introduction this evening, these thoughts... I believe would in fact be very appropriate as we give thought to that statement that you and I hear from time to time. Have you ever heard that phrase, to err is human, to forgive divine? I know that from time to time that's heard in a variety of contexts, be it in articles, be it in the assertions, how that we should understand one another's mistakes, failures, and perhaps even sins. But one should always be ever ready and quick to forgive at a moment's notice and reflection. Tonight, as we give thought to that, though, sometimes I might bring to our attention that it seems to be used in a way that supposedly speaks of God. What I mean by that is this. Some seem to think that a statement like that indicates that God is always exceedingly quick and rapid to issue the matter of forgiveness no matter what the person has done or not done and whether or not they seem to make any statement of repentance or not. After all, He's loving, He's gracious, He's merciful, He's kind. He will overlook the mistakes. Seems to be the thought that many are willing to hold in view about the God of heaven. It is with regard to that tonight, I would ask that we think carefully and clearly about that, looking back to the scene of 1 Kings 13 to help us better appreciate and understand the thrust and force of it. Again, our thought, does God overlook mistakes? Does He turn a blind eye, pretend they don't exist? As we'll see in this chapter, I believe the answer is a very forthright one. To do that, let's begin in a note of history. Turning back to First Kings 13... We, in fact, revisit this. It's a bit of a lengthy chapter. I'll try to overview and summarize the vast majority of it, specifically giving thought to the matters that we need to consider for the lesson this evening. The days of Solomon as the third ruler of the United Kingdom of Israel had come and gone. We will well remember that as his reign came to an end, it somewhat ended in a note of foolishness, specifically in light of that which was his son, When the kingdom split, we remember that Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, began to in fact reign over that rather localized kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom. But however, he made some rather foolish decisions as he listened to the advice of the younger men. They told him that he should in fact be stern and forthright and firm in his leadership of the kingdom. He should raise the tax rates. Most of the time, that's not something that's very pleasant in any age, is it? But as Solomon listened to those who were his younger contemporaries, he nonetheless appreciated that the things did not turn out well. Jeroboam rose to a position of interest and ten of the tribes broke away and began to follow him and that left only two to follow Rehoboam. As Jeroboam was the leader of that northern kingdom of Israel we quickly find that a number of things he did. First of all, he orchestrated worship at two places, Dan in the north and Bethel in the south. Now we remember that God had placed His name at Jerusalem where the temple was, 1 Kings 9 verses 3 and 4, and that was the location and place wherein the great worship of Jehovah God was to occur. Jeroboam understood though that if the people went back to Jerusalem that they might turn their attention to Rehoboam and not to him and he would lose control over the empire and he would lose control over the northern kingdom of Israel. So he erected these two altars, one at Dan and one at Bethel, and he encouraged the people to go there and worship, but that isn't all that he did. He also appointed individuals to serve as priests who were not of the tribe of Levi That alone was an absolute error and sinful matter in the sight of God, but even that should be noted he also did something else. He arranged for a new feast, one that God had not commanded, and thus he urged the people to worship at different places than God had commanded, to worship by virtue of different priests than God had ordained, and furthermore to worship at different times of the year than God had set forth. All the while, we begin to see clearly Jeroboam wasn't guided by Thus saith the Lord. He was guided by his own feelings and his own preferences and his own ideas of what would suit him and his empire better. All the while, God had orchestrated and affirmed powerfully this was wrong. How many times does the Old Testament affirm for all of us that Jeroboam made Israel to sin? Time and again, that reflection on His life is set forth for us. It brings us to notice, interestingly, the scene of 1 Kings 13. The very next chapter, after those things that you and I had just noted were stated, we find this taking place. God commissioned a young prophet to come to this place. Now, this prophet was from the character of Judah. God commissioned him to come and to share a message, in fact, to cry against the altar at Bethel. Bethel was a city just across the border into the northern kingdom, and this prophet came and had a strong cry of denunciation toward it. In fact, he made the absolute statement that upon this very altar, the bones of these false priests and prophets shall in fact be offered and the bones of men will in fact there find a character of being offered in burnt sacrifice. Jeroboam happened to be present on the occasion of that offering and as he heard what the young prophet cried, no doubt, as the text indicates, he was beside himself with a bit of anger. After all, Jeroboam was the one that authorized this place and now this prophet has come and he is crying against it in denunciation of the power of God. Needless to say, Jeroboam, "'stretched forth his hand in an attitude of commandment, "'for he was about to say, "'Take him.'" He was going to give authorization to those who were his servants to take this prophet and do with him as Jeroboam would in no doubt have commanded. However, Jeroboam's arm stuck in the position that he extended it. The God of heaven was providing a firm declaration that Jeroboam again was in the wrong. He was unable to retrieve and to pull his hand back into him. At that point, Jeroboam, in this position, recognized that what was occurring was from the mouth of this young prophet of God. He thus urged and pleaded with that prophet to beseech God on his behalf that the hand might be restored to its rightful place and position. The young prophet besought God on behalf of Jeroboam, and God did bless the return of his hand with the power and usability that it formerly had had. In the verses that follow, Jeroboam next began to describe and discuss things with the young prophet. He said, "'Come to my house and be refreshed, and I will give thee a reward.'" Amazingly, the young prophet did not accept the offer. In fact, he said, "'Due to the concourse of God's commandment, I may not go with thee, for the God of heaven commanded me. Thou shalt eat no bread, drink no water, and go back by a different way than thou camest to Bethel.'" It was the case. The prophet knew exceedingly well what the God of heaven had asserted. He even reiterated it to Jeroboam. We notice that the young man then rather swiftly went on his way and returned, it would seem, to the southern kingdom of Judah. However, the story isn't over. For we well remember that now the saga picks up with some other individuals listed and named in 1 Kings 13. There was an old prophet living in Bethel. This older prophet had a number of sons, and they had been present on the occasion when that younger prophet had made a cry of denunciation upon the altar that day, and they had witnessed what had happened to Jeroboam's hand. When they came home and shared that news with their father, the older prophet, he reacted in a very unusual way. In fact, he said, Saddle me the ass the donkey, if you please, for it was his intent to pursue after the young prophet. And lo and behold, as he pursued after him, he found the young prophet sitting beneath an oak tree, and he was surely surely on his way to that southern kingdom of Judah. However, as the conversation developed between them, interestingly enough, it took the following form. First of all, the older prophet. Ask, Are you the young prophet that in fact this day cried to the altar? And the young prophet affirmed that he was. And furthermore, the older prophet said, Come to my house and be refreshed, and I will in fact share bread with thee. One more time, in such a dutiful and magnificent way, the young prophet affirmed, I may not do that. For God in fact gave me the commandment, that I must eat no bread, drink no water, and return into Bethel by a different way than I in fact had come. The older prophet listened intently to what the young man had said, but he then interjected in the following way. And you might appreciate that in that interjection, the old prophet had something interesting to say. This is about the middle point of that slide. He said, "'I too am a prophet of God.'" And furthermore, an angel of the Lord has appeared to me this very day and asserted that you ought to come and should come with me to my house and there enjoy bread and water, and you may then be sent on your way to return to your proper place. But interesting enough, the very last statement in verse number 18 is this, but he lied unto him. The old prophet lied to the young prophet. At this point, the scene rather quickly unfolds as follows. When the young prophet went with the older prophet to enjoy the meal at his house, the God of heaven overwhelmed the older prophet, and during the course of the meal, he began to prophesy. And his prophecy directed toward the young prophet was this, Thou hast obeyed the voice of the Lord thy God. Thou wast told to neither eat bread nor drink water in this place, but thou hast in fact disobeyed. For that reason, thy carcass shall not return to thy fathers. In verse number 23, the one Greg read earlier this this very night, we notice that at the conclusion of the meal it would seem, everything was prepared, the ass was also made ready, the young prophet set out on his way homeward, but a lion met him in the way and took his life. The young prophet lost his life on that journey homeward, Isn't it amazing in verses 23 and following, we notice that the lion did not tear the body, however, did not destroy it, rip it to shreds and consume it. Furthermore, the lion did not destroy the ass on which the young prophet was riding. Oddly enough, we find in fact that both the lion and the ass were standing there beside the carcass. The older prophet learned of the state of affairs of the carcass of the young prophet. He again prepared himself and went to the place, retrieved the body and brought it back and actually had it buried in his own sepulcher. Oddly enough, he gave the following commandment to his own sons. The older prophet said to his own children, When I die, bury me next to him. Bury me next to him. For indeed, he was a prophet of God. At that point, with verse 31 closing, the story has been unfolded might I invite each of us to reflect upon it and note a few observations as well as some lessons that might be very encouraging to all of us. The first lesson, it would seem to me, might well be this one. As I've listed it for you, I've simply entitled it, First Observational Point, No Innocent Sins. Here was a young man who himself was well apprised of what God had commanded. He even stated it twice, twice. Once to Jeroboam, once to the older prophet, but when he was persuaded to do otherwise, we learned something valiant. It nonetheless cost him his life. It would seem if ever there was a position in time when someone could say, but I didn't mean to. This was just an innocent sin. Surely God will overlook this. But yet God did not overlook it. The lion, in fact, took his life he indeed was never to return to that place and be buried with his fathers in the sepulchres of those whom he loved. The characteristic of that might prompt us in the following way. Despite the fact he was intently honest, he believed what the old prophet said. He had no reason at that point apparently to expect the man to be lying to him and he simply innocently perhaps felt it would be very nice to enjoy some cold water. It would be very refreshing to enjoy a bit of bread. That didn't make any difference. God had already given the commandment. There was no innocent sin involved here. The man disobeyed. Did not that what God said? Might I invite you to read with me verse number 21. When the God of heaven prophesied through the old prophet at that meal, this is what he said, "'Thus saith the Lord for as much as thou hast disobeyed the mouth of the Lord.'" and hast not kept the commandment which the Lord thy God commanded thee, but camest back, and hast eaten bread and drunk water in the place, of the which the Lord did say to thee, Eat no bread and drink no water. Thy carcass shall not come unto the sepulcher of thy fathers. I wonder how the chills must have risen up on that man's neck and back as he heard that prophecy from the God of heaven. At that point recognizing he had disobeyed. One might expect he might have fallen forthright in a prostrate fashion and pleaded with God, but it was an innocent sin, wasn't it? And all the while, God said, your carcass is going to fall in the wilderness because you disobeyed. You knew the commandment I had given. You understood it firmly and fully and thoroughly and entirely, and yet you disobeyed me. May you and I never forget that there are no innocent little sins. Our God is not a little God. And so every transgression of His will is not a little transgression. It is a mighty transgression. Some verses, some thoughts that point us along that way. In 1 John 3 verse 4, long near the conclusion, the last few books in the New Testament, we find there this inspired definition, "...whosoever sinneth transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law." Here, this younger prophet transgressed, violated what it was that God had given him to do. You'll also notice a few other thoughts that remind us verses like these. In Psalm 19, verse 13, there the psalmist so majestically prayed, Keep back thy servant from presumptuous sin. What is a presumptuous sin? Is it not the case that adjective presumptuous has reference to those kinds of thoughts and ideas when a man thinks that's the proper and right way? A person by his present understanding is under the illusion impression that this is entirely right when in fact it isn't. Keep back thy servant from presumptuous sin. This man thought it was all right to go back and enjoy bread and water, but it wasn't. May you and I today never be deceived to the point of forgetting the possibility of presumptuous sin. The psalmist prayed, keep back thy servant from presumptuous sin. What was the sin that Adam and Eve committed? We might first make mention of Eve. We know she was deceived. Paul, in fact, wrote of the same in 1 Timothy 2, verses 13 and 14. But notice, Satan convinced her, even though God had said that the food that the forbidden fruit was not to be partaken of, she was persuaded at that moment differently. By the same token, Adam also, by her leadership and by her influence, was persuaded of the same. But did that change what God had said? In Genesis 2, verses 15 and 16, God said, In the day that thou shalt eat thereof, thou shalt surely die. The sentence of death came upon them that day. And sure enough, in Genesis 5, they met their death. Thus, we learn one more time that there are no innocent little sins, and the one at Bethel was not something that God was merely going to overlook. In Leviticus chapters 4 and 5, we read interestingly about the sin of ignorance. Was it possible for the children of Israel to sin ignorantly, not even perhaps consciously aware in fullness of what it was they were supposed to understand? The answer was yes. Yes. And when they came to appreciate and be apprised of that fact, there was a sacrifice that had to be offered. Might we notice again, God merely didn't just pretend that it had never been. Maybe a second lesson comes before us as well. On this occasion, God had initially stated to the younger prophet, eat no bread while in that place, drink no water while in that place, and return in a different way than thou went. The old prophet, however, later came along and said, An angel of the Lord has spoken to me and said, You are supposed to eat bread here and drink water. Might we notice, is our God an inconsistent God? Will He tell one person one thing and tell one another and those two be mutually exclusive? He told the young prophet, Don't eat bread and drink water. He told the older man, He is supposed to eat bread and drink water. Is our God an inconsistent God? That was a lesson it would have been helpful for the young prophet to remember. But it is true, isn't it? Our God is not inconsistent. He doesn't tell one person one thing, tell another one something different, and they both be exclusive one to the other and yet both be right. Our God doesn't behave in that way. In fact, some thoughts that move us in that direction might well be this host of verses there at the bottom of that slide. First of all, in 1 Corinthians 16, beginning in verse 1, when the Apostle Paul gave reference to and commandment concerning the collection on the first day of the week, he began that by saying, "...as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye." What was supposed to be understood and thus obeyed by those churches in Galatia was the very same message that God gave to the church in Corinth. There was no distinction, no difference, no fundamental difference. What he intended for one to understand was also to be understood by the other. In 1 Thessalonians 1 verse number 8, we read in terms of the church at Thessalonica the amazing and recognizable truth that they had sounded out the word of truth to so many in that area. Paul's point was this, you are proclaiming by the life that you live the same truth that I and my companions have proclaimed, and that is a notable and complimentary thing. You see, there was a description of unity and harmony among what the Thessalonians were believing and doing in terms of also what Paul was preaching. Perhaps another example in Acts 15, verse number 9. On that occasion, as reference was made about the Gentiles... Peter stood rather forthrightly and said that God has put no difference between us and them. Notice, the same plan of salvation that had been set forth on the day of Pentecost for the Jews, Peter said has now also been delivered by God for the Gentiles. No difference between us and them. God didn't give a different manner of faithfulness to the Gentiles than He did to the Jews. They were each commanded to live beneath the brightness of the umbrella of the gospel of God. Perhaps one final example in Colossians 4.16. On that occasion, Paul in writing to the Colossians said that this epistle should be read also before the Laodiceans and the epistle to the Laodiceans you brethren need to read. In other words, what he had written for the church in Colossae was also noteworthy and useful for the church at Laodicea and vice versa. Today, you and I stand beneath the lovely banner of understanding that God is no respecter of persons, Romans 2, 11. And in Acts 10, verses 34 and 35 of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation, he that worketh righteousness is accepted of him. Today, you and I know that no matter what the nation is, An individual that in fact works righteousness in full belief of God in terms of faithful obedience is able to stand right and approved in his sight. God is no respecter of persons. If that young prophet had remembered that thought, he might have had second consideration about whether that older prophet was telling him the truth or not. But maybe all of that does bring us to a third observation. In addition to these two, Might we give some thought to this one? That young prophet, again, we each understand that it's entirely wise and our parents perhaps have encouraged us to know you respect your elders. You look upon those of your parents' and grandparents' generation and you understand the wisdom that's within them. And you understand also the fact that they have years of experience This younger prophet perhaps was in a situation not unlike that. Here is an older prophet, one who has perhaps labored for many, many decades. Perhaps that younger prophet could say, but God, I was just respecting my elders. But God, I had no idea this man was lying to me. I, in fact, was very dutiful in everything you commanded except in the characteristic of my belief. "...of this older prophet. Ought not that have counted? Surely you might overlook my sin on this case." We might notice that no words like that fell from the lips of the younger prophet, for one thing. But also, we do learn a rather valiant lesson. Can you and I cast the blame for our sin upon someone else? Could the younger prophet have said, but the older prophet made me do it? And would that have been satisfactory to the God of heaven?" there seems to be no evidence in either the Old or the New Testament that God is accepting of that kind of argument. You and I may not simply cast the blame on someone else. In our present age, quite frankly, that often is found to be in disagreement to what our sociologists and what our psychologists so often tell me. But you as a child were battered and bruised and you were mistreated. Oh, that explains everything about the abnormalities in your present behavior. In so many ways, that's nonsense. We each stand before the God of heaven and shall give account of ourselves. I can't blame it on dad. I can't blame it on mom. Now, they will give answer for the errors of their life to be sure if they haven't been forgiven. But you and I are not in position, are we? to simply put the blame on someone else and say, but God, He made me do it. She made me do it. Flip Wilson, in part, made a career out of saying, the devil made me do it. When the little devil would stand on his shoulder and he would say some cute statement, but may we never forget, it really isn't funny. Because the world, in so many ways, bought into that. And today, there are still many who... Receive extensive postgraduate training, and in many ways they are quick to blame it on. that's the way you were brought up. That's the environment in which you were. We aren't arguing their environment may influence us, but in the final analysis, we're going to give an answer for what we've done. and we can't lay the blame on somebody else. These verses, in fact, challenge us in that very regard. Did you notice again, what God, through the older prophet, said to the young prophet? He addressed him directly and said, Thou hast disobeyed. He didn't say, You have an excuse for the older prophet. You, my friend, he said, have disobeyed. May we ever appreciate the forthrightness and directness of God's message to that younger prophet. You'll notice in Genesis 3, verses 13 and following, this has been a rather old ploy, hasn't it? When God addressed Adam, after he and Eve had partaken of the forbidden fruit, it was Adam who said, The woman that you made, she gave to me, and I did eat. But might we notice that God didn't just accept His passing of the blame to the woman. When He addressed her, she said, The serpent gave to me, and I did eat. God didn't accept her passing of the blame to the serpent either. He punished all three of them, Adam, the woman, and the serpent as well. In 2 Thessalonians 2, verse number 11, we read on that occasion after that description of the man of sin that God quickly makes note through the prophet or through the man Paul that there were going to be many who would accept the false teaching that would come by way of the man of sin. But in the final analysis he says, Many shall receive strong delusion that they might believe a lie. You'll notice again, there's going to be many who are going to believe a lie, just like the young prophet did. And just like the young prophet, they will have to answer to the God of heaven for it. God shall send them strong delusion. That doesn't mean that God's the one telling them the lies, but He allows men and women to make their own decisions. And if they choose to teach what's in error, and if men and women choose to believe it, those men and women will have to answer for believing that which was not true. The truth of God reigns supreme, doesn't it? And we all must humbly stand at the feet of that greatness and appreciate that it is that truth that shall stand as our judge. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. John 12, verse 48. Not only can the blame not be passed, it does bring us then to perhaps a thought that goes right along with that one. When it comes to matters of religion, there seemingly is a strong tendency to simply accept what so often is said. Isn't that seemingly the truth in the world about us? That person wears a nice fancy suit and he's clearly studied, so surely he must be right. That man, you see, he wears this long fancy looking robe and he speaks with an eloquent tongue. Well, surely he has studied and he's teaching me what's right. No doubt the young prophet believed the old prophet. He thought he was speaking to him what the angel of the Lord had said. But he lied. The old prophet wasn't telling him the truth. And today, might we never forget passages like these. In 1 John 4 verse 1, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they be of God. For many false prophets are going out into the world. It was the case even in the first century that John carefully and powerfully said, Brethren, don't you believe everything you hear in the name of religion? Because many false prophets are active and they're alive and well in this world. Peter echoed a similar sentiment, didn't he, in 2 Peter 2 verse 1. When there, after highlighting the greatness of the Word of God, the very next statement was, But just as there were false prophets among the people, there shall even so be false teachers among you who privately shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and shall bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. That's Second Peter 2, verses 1 through 3. Peter thus noted that just as surely as there were false prophets among the ancient people of Israel, there's going to be false teachers among you. It's just something we need to accept. There shall be these individuals. And he said they'll bring in damnable heresies. They'll even deny the Lord that bought them. And furthermore, many are going to follow their pernicious ways. All of that helps us see ever so clearly, doesn't it? That we mustn't simply accept and believe everything that is taught in the name of religion. Like those Bereans in Acts 17, 11, we need to have a mindset in which... We understand this truth. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the Scriptures daily, whether those things were so. May the question that emanates from us ever then be, What saith the Scripture? Romans 4 verse 3. These lessons, the first four of these that we have considered tonight, perhaps conclude by observing that in Jeremiah 5 verse 31 closing verse to that fifth chapter of that noble major prophet it is a rather sad reflection upon the nation of Israel specifically it reads as follows the prophets prophesy falsely the priests bear rule by their means and my people love to have it so you see there are those who have itching ears and they actually like false teaching because it doesn't demand anything of them in so many cases They're able to come into a building lost, go out lost, and never know the difference. Whereas, if they are approached with the Word of God, and it's preached with boldness, but always with love and kindness, then they might be prompted to recognize there's a need for me to change. And in most instances, folks don't like to change. But may we never forget, we need that straightforward preaching. And we need to ever humbly appreciate that it's the Word of God and our humble living in accordance with it, that shall lead to our eternal salvation. There is a fifth lesson, and we'll use it as our last one this evening. This fifth lesson is this. Nestled in the very heart of the things we've studied tonight, but somewhat near the beginning of that chapter was a a very beautiful mention of a prophecy. I would invite you to return to the opening verses of 1 Kings 13. Verse number 2 reads as follows. And he cried against the altar in the word of the Lord, and said, O altar, altar, thus saith the Lord, Behold, a child shall be born into the house of David, Josiah by name, and upon thee shall he offer the priests of the high places that burn incense upon thee, and men's bones shall be burnt upon thee. Now those were the words of that young prophet when he prophesied against the altar. But did you notice he absolutely said that not only would these false prophets be offered upon it, and not only would it be of a position to lead to an end in that regard, he said, there's a man named Josiah who is going to rule over the character of the desecration of and the end of burning these bones upon this altar. I wonder as you and I give thought to who was this man called Josiah, when did he live? I would submit that that, perhaps in finality, closes this lesson by reminding us of just how great this book is. Here the God of heaven through that young prophet called by name, a man that wasn't even going to be born for about 300 years. Wasn't even going to be born for roughly 300 years. That certainly is proof positive that our God not only wrote the scriptures, but He is well aware of what you and I would consider to yet come in the future. Who could possibly call by name a boy, a baby that will be born three years, three hundred years from now and even tell what he was going to do in his life? and yet the God of heaven could do it with absolute ease because the future isn't hidden to him. He knows very well what's going to transpire and he knew what Josiah was going to do. There is a record by the way of what exactly Josiah did in fulfillment of this prophecy it's found near the end of second kings as well as near the end of second chronicles but both of them indicate to you and me the features that again god knew well that that little baby the boy named josiah would be born he would reign as king over israel and that he would in fact do the very things the young prophet here foretold oh how great is the word of god it is a book unlike any other it is a book that holds within it the absolute revelation of god's truth Though our world has so many books, and of the making of many books there is no end. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. We nonetheless notice this book stands unique among all of them, for it wasn't produced by man. The God of heaven did it. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit." Second Peter 1, verses 20 and 21. In regard to the Word of God forming for us that concluding thought to the lesson, here are some passages that remind us again of how special this Word of truth is. The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and His Word was in my tongue, the refrain of 2 Samuel 23, 2. Perhaps finally, in Jeremiah 1, verse 9. That bold prophet of old was told again by God, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Jeremiah, you see, had in his possession the word of God. Not God's impressions, not God's speculations, not merely God's will, but it was God's will in God's words. And it was that that he revealed to the nation of Judah. Tonight then in these five lessons, as we've revisited the old and young prophet. We might summarize them in the following set of ways. First of all, the history itself of 1 Kings 13 is an intriguing thing. But even beyond that, we've learned that there are no innocent little sins. We entitled the lesson, Innocent Error at Bethel, and the answer was no. Beyond the characteristic, however, of that, we quickly observe that our God is not an inconsistent God. He is no respecter of persons. And what's more, lesson number three, you and I may never be in position to rightfully cast the blame for our sin upon someone else. Fourthly, we saw powerfully that we must not simply believe anything and everything proclaimed in the name of religion. And finally, we saw most recently that notable prophet concerning Josiah that reminds us of just how great this book is and the truths that are of course found in it. This very night, we each then are asked by God to personally analyze ourselves. Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith, he said. 2 Corinthians thirteen five, Are you and I in the faith tonight? Or perhaps like the young prophet, have we believed the lie someone has told us and thus because of that have begun to live in a way that's apart from God's truth? If that might be descriptive of your circumstance or mine, maybe tonight we now realize the urgency of a need to change things before our fate becomes as bad as was the fate of the young prophet. If you've never named the sweet name of Jesus as your Savior, why not tonight? In fact, Jesus has stated for us the need to believe upon Him, repent of our sins, confess His name as a Son of God and be baptized. If we could assist you in that tonight, what a great honor for you and for us it would be. If you have become a Christian, but at this very night you are not faithful, you have lost your first love, you've walked aside from the truth, you've brought reproach perhaps upon the cause of the Master and on the church for which he died. If tonight we could pray upon your behalf for the God to forgive you, you of course need to have belief, repentance, and confess those errors and He's promised to forgive. If we could be of help to you tonight... Will you not let it be known in what way we could be of assistance and do that at once while together we stand and while we sing?